Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dennis Wadan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, and it is the second half of our conversation with Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. Nadia has been a guest on Tad's podcast, Cannabis Cultivation and Science, and we were delighted to have Tad on in the guest seat instead this time. Thank you for growing with us. This question keeps kind of revolving through my brain during our conversation, which is about how you amend these living soils or, or what you use. And you've brought up a few, few thoughts. You, you've said compost, compost tea, biochar, earthworm castings, with these materials that, I mean, some of them are, are sort of alive, some of them are, you know, inert, I guess. Is there a concern about the consistency of those amendments um, that, I mean, would you also want to test those before applying them to your soil? Ideally, I mean, for your raised vegetable garden, like you're probably not going to spend sure. hundreds of dollars on testing. If right. you're in a, a facility though, um, yes, it would be great to have that testing because those amendments can have heavy metals and you know, at the end of the day, when we go to re-amend a soil, let's just say that that's, so I see that it's the end of a cycle, we're low in nitrogen. Nitrates are low. So how do I raise that up for the next cycle? Well, there's a ton of different amendments we could use. A compost, a compost that has good nitrogen levels is one example. Um, feather meal, bat guano, blood meal, fish meal. There's a ton of options, a variety of manures. All these things are going to bring in nitrogen. And they all have pros and cons. Like I don't like to use any bat guanos because not because they aren't good sources of NPK, but because they're just not ecologically very sustainable for our environment. One could make the argument that they don't want to support our industrial slaughterhouses and and current meat production systems, so they don't want to use blood meal. Or you may say, hey, I'm you know I don't like the way our fisheries are run, and I don't want to get anything out of the ocean because of risk of, I don't know, radiation or mercury or things like that. And then you may want not want to use fish meal. So there's a lot of thought that has to go into wow, that's a lot. how you're amending. <laughs> but at the end of the day, the plant doesn't care. It doesn't care if it's blood meal. It doesn't care if it's ammonium nitrate. It doesn't care if it's earthworm castings. I mean, it, it, nitrate is nitrate to the plant. And that's something as an organic person that was really hard for me to want to accept because I want to think that like my organic input is better than a, a chemical input, but really the plant doesn't care. Now there's, I think there's a ton of other benefits when we use earthworm castings over ammonium nitrate, because we're able to get, you know, all these beneficial microbes, we're getting trace minerals, we're getting all these other benefits to it, organic matter that you wouldn't get from a chemical fertilizer. It's better for the environment. Um, it's a, you know, a closed loop cycle of breakdown of, you know, vegetable matter or some other ecosystem of, of our food production. So I, I think we can look at why and make arguments for why we're doing something, but at the same time, we have to be, you know, I, I still think we have to use science and realize like at the end of the day, when we, when we're doing these things, it doesn't matter to the plant. Right. Right. Have you thought about legumes? Could, could we use some grow some legume cover crops to fix nitrogen from the air? Yes, you can. Um, <laughs> That's my out of the box thought for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, clover is a classic example of a nitrogen. Yes, that's a it, good one. You know, mm -hmm. um, it creates a great relationship with rhizobacteria and creates this, you know, creates nitrogen, atmospheric nitrogen into a form the plant can take up. However, in, indoors, at least, um, it can be really hard to manage and can be a huge pest attractant for things like weeds, specifically. Um, yeah, so <laughs> oh, I, pest I, attractant, that's good. Yeah, you're right. When you add another crop in there, you're adding an ecosystem uh, for a potential pest and another vector and another crop you have to manage. Whereas when we're talking about a crop like cannabis, that's such a high value crop spending a little bit of money to get my end from a more targeted source. Um, to me, the, the pros outweigh the cons. 
In fact, mm -hmm. I put a whole article on my blog on why I don't use cover crops indoors. Really, it's oh, awesome. Plants. I didn't know that. I, cool. I can't wait to read that. It, oh, really? It was, it's about companion plants? Tell well, me about that. What, what is, what's a cover crop, really, when you think about it? And Suzanne was the one that lectured me on this. She's like, you're using the wrong term. I'm like, it's the industry term. But she's totally right. Because a cover crop is something where you're covering the topsoil. It's traditionally used when, you know, when you're not growing your main crop. So what we're doing in the cannabis industry or what people are calling cover crops is they're putting down like a living mulch or a companion yeah. plant or a variety of plants that they'll grow at the same time as their cannabis plant. And personally, I don't like to do it in commercial systems. I think in like a small home grow, it's perfectly fine, but it's also another variable. And as you know, when you when you're talking about CEA, we have so many variables um, that we have to look at already. I just try to eliminate as many as I can to simplify the process. So, yeah, and you know, uh, a classic uh, companion plant pair are tomatoes and basil. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't just taste great together, uh, but they grow great together. Uh, and some researchers have sort of tried to figure out why they work well together. I mean, they both really like a lot of sun, but they think that the basil plants that the terpenes that they produce, right, um, the odors that they produce are actually a deterrent to pests that would otherwise attack tomatoes. And that also maybe there's something about uh, the roots working together in a symbiotic relationship. So tomatoes yeah. and basil, great pair. You know, I think a lot of the stuff with companion planting gets overstated from an insect perspective. Like you can plant African marigolds, you can still get a pest infestation, you know. Um, I think people are overconfident with what those can do. And I think it's really all about pest pressure at that point. Mm. But I, what you're saying about the root zone interactions, I think is what we're going to find out down the road and we're already starting to learn about is that when we start talking about um plant root interactions not not just between diversified species but like we did a trial at uh, gold leaf gardens here in washington state where we took plants and put them in cannabis plants in 30 gallon pots and then we put you know the same cultivar in a giant bed and by volume, the ones in the 30-gallon pots actually got more soil than the ones in the beds. Yet the ones in the beds out-yielded the ones in the pots to a statistically significant amount. And so from that, you know, our, we hypothesized that the beds not only allow for greater root zone expansion, but that there may be some symbiotic relationship going on between the various, you know, signaling and things between the plant roots of various plants within that bed, mm -hmm. which would fit with what research is kind of showing as we're learning about forests and, you know, yes. larger functional ecosystems. So, yeah. Were, were those plants the same cultivar? Did they come from the same mother? Uh, yes. In fact, I think we put that up on our website blog as well. So if people want to read about cool. the methodology cool. um, and see the photos, we have that on there. There was a study I read, I don't know, it's been a couple years now, so I, I can't remember all the specific details, but talking about forest ecology and, and understanding how plants, you know, that plants do communicate to each other, whether it's in the roots or in the air. Some people think like the VOCs that plants produce also might be part of their communication with plants, communication with each other. Uh, anyway, so this study showed that when there was an insect infestation, and again, I don't remember all the details, that these, these trees basically, that they sent out a signal to warn other trees that there was an insect infestation, right? And so like the first tree mm -hmm. got attacked and it sends out some signal. Well, what they found is that all the trees in the forest benefited from that, that first communicator, but the trees that were related to that first tree that were part mm -hmm. of its family got the signal first and, and actually benefited the most and had the most disease resistant or insect resistance than the other plants. The other plants did benefit, but they didn't get the, they didn't get the memo first. The family plants mm -hmm. did. Yeah. I'm going to have to look that up. I'll send that to you, but 
um, plants are so cool. And then just their relationships with, with fungi and the mushrooms that, you know, have these great mycelium networks that, that could be, you know, the telegram, the telephone networks under the ground that we don't know about. It's plants are so cool. Yeah. <laughs> They're so, yeah, cool. I've read a little bit about that. It's so fascinating. Um, you know, some of these like fungal networks that are so large, they're like under massive forests, like acreage of like what they essentially consider one organism. It's just, it's just crazy. So it is. Uh, yeah. yeah. They used to think that it was a mushroom, I think in Oregon, that was yeah. the largest organism. And now they've decided it's the Aspens in Colorado, that is the largest organism because they're all just shoots off of the same rooting system. Oh, I hadn't heard that. I'll yeah. about that. Yeah, you love that. There's one thing that I think we need to touch on, because if I was listening to this podcast and hearing me, I'd be like, well, you know, he says living soil is great, but what about pests? Because that's the one thing Absolutely. that like all horticulture, that's the reason horticulture doesn't reuse media. Mm -hmm. uh, and frankly, in a lot of horticultural situations, it makes sense. Like you can't send plants to Home Depot that has like row beetles in there or, um, you know, more specifically any level of pest pressure. Whereas in living soil, we can, you know, realistically, every grow is going to get pests at some point in time. If we can manage those under an economic threshold, then it's okay. So we're still utilizing all, you know, best practice in terms of IPM. And I know Suzanne hates reusing like, it, it makes her job harder when that soil isn't leaving the facility. You can thoroughly clean the room and then move things back in. But we, we have a lot of growers that can are successfully growing, uh, you know, high quality cannabis, like commanding top shelf pricing in the industry here in Washington, even right now where the whole industry is just racing to the bottom due to oversupply. These guys are still getting, you know, top prices because the quality is really, really good. Um, they may be battling, you know, root aphids or cannabis aphid or have over the years. And so it can be more challenging, but we, I think we've figured out ways to knock back these pests through biocontrols and targeted sprays and, and also using, you know, proper sanitation practices to where it's not a, it's not a deal breaker, I guess. I'm really glad you brought that up because because I did want to ask about sort of sanitation and, and how you clean a room. You know, when I think about the takedown of the room um, after a harvest um, or, you know, during transplanting activities, if you're in like the veg space, I mean, you can basically take everything out of there and spray it down if you wanted and, you know, and, and then have an ozone bomb if you want, you know, overnight type of a thing. How would you clean a space during takedown when you have living soils in that space? What, what would that look like different? I mean, basically you're doing a lot of the same things. I mean, I don't know of any growers that are doing an ozone bomb. That well, that's good. <laughs> that <laughs> but, wouldn't uh, be good. Yeah. I mean, or they're, you know, bleaching or zero tall or some sort of sanitizer every surface besides the soil is a way of cleaning it and they maintain a clean facility, but we realize that they're, you know, they're releasing biocontrols and there are mm. going to be things living in the soil and cruising around the room, protecting the soil doesn't end up sticking to all the buds. Isn't really an issue, but helps not just as a preventative, but also um, when they are treating or dealing with a problem. So yeah, I mean, I feel like we've seen just about everything. You know, the industry started, I remember it was like, oh my gosh, spider mites are such a pain in the butt. <laughs> and then we were like, oh, broad mites, the government is spraying them out there on the side of the roads, which was a myth. Um, oh my God. Like, These are so hard to deal with. <laughs> and, and then it was, you know, root aphids, uh, hemp russet now is everywhere. Mm, and yeah. uh, the cannabis aphid, the only one that I feel like it's just really, really tough. Um, but, but we've had some success even knocking back below an economic threshold is the root knot nematode. That one is just a bugger, huh. uh, pun intended. Um, it's just, they're really, really hard uh, to manage when you can't remove the soil. 
but we have thrown out soil and started over. I was just going to so. ask: is is would there ever be a scenario or or or, or a recommendation like, okay, this soil is good for ten cycles, you know, two years type of a thing? Okay, now it's time to replace it. So, okay, you don't keep soil into perpetuity, but that's still a whole hell of a lot better than ten cycles of throwing out rock wool, right? Would you ever make that recommendation? Yeah. So with, with Justin, I, cause I work most closely with, with them at their facility. We did see over time due to their water source, bringing in sodium and not being able to flush the soil. We did reach a point where it was like, you know, let's just get a restart. That'll help, you know, lower your pH that'll remove the sodium and we can kind of start over. It's worth it for the value of the crop and the amount of the labor to just start over. But this again was a ways in. And then at another point in time with Justin way back in a long time ago on the medical side, we uh, had some root knot nematode that we were battling uh, at his place. And for that, initially we were just replacing the soil because it just, it was too hard. They, they could, not, could not get it down. And then they found it, they came up with some strategies that allowed them to at least knock it back to where um, they were able to get a decent harvest and then they could maintain that for like three or four cycles and then have to replace the soil because the populations would eventually rise up to the level to where they were damaging the plant too much, you know, above that economic threshold. We have other facilities though, like Goldleaf, for example, that will flush their bed at the end of the cycle with a specific amount of water. And then they're re-amending with essentially the same prescription almost every cycle. And they've been using the same soil. They got soil from me. Oh man. Whenever 502 started in Washington state. I don't even know when that was eight years ago, nine years ago. Yeah. 2012. Okay. Well, they haven't bought, they've been using the same soil this whole time. Wow. um, Why? Like, what is, what's the difference? Like, why is some soil keep and some doesn't, is it about how the growers are managing it is maybe about the cultivars that they're growing. Is it about the environment they're growing in? Do you have any clues? It's just the, it's not, there's nothing. I mean, I think there's something special about our soil because we put a lot of research into balancing it and getting the right fertility and amendments, but there's no reason you couldn't have done the same thing with ProMix or Fox Farm or any of these other brands that are, you know, out there. If it's managed correctly, it's all about just managing the fertility. And, you know, like I said, those three things, the physical, the physical properties, the biological properties and the chemical properties of that soil. So yeah, they could have done it with ProMix. Okay. You know, with with the right the proper amendments. So where does the soil go? I mean, can can we just throw it out on a field or put it in our garden and and it'll work well? I mean, after we've used it for our indoor grow. If you are throwing out soil, uh, yes, absolutely. Now I can't speak to like other methods, but with this you know, with our soils, if you're not applying a lot of heavy mineral salts, they're going to leach into our environment at the end of a, the growth cycle, then absolutely. We have some of ours going to community pea patches and uh, school gardens um, and, and things like that. Or a lot of times the employees of the facility will just take it home and grow their veggies in it. And frankly, it does really, really well, even after That's so awesome. a cannabis cycle. But you want to be careful too, because if you have, you know, most things outdoors, there's natural enemies and predators that will sort of mm. bounce out and take care of it. But I wouldn't want to bring uh, soil from a facility that has root aphids and bring it in and grow my own indoor cannabis plant with it. I think you're asking for potentially bringing in pests and problems. So there's some considerations, but at the end of the day, yeah, that's where we hope our soil goes, goes if people are not reusing it. That's, that's so awesome that you can, you can reuse this media. This is not something that has to go to a landfill or I don't know, has to be super sterilized before it's repurposed for some other application. Like you can still use it to grow plants at home or or at your school. I love that. Oh, I I grow my veggies in, you know, quote unquote, living soil. I and I've grown my house plants in it. Um, it works really well. The one thing that you have to be ready for indoors is anytime you have a compost fraction in your soil mix is fungus gnats. 
because they love organic matter. There's no real way to necessarily kill them off without damaging some of your beneficial, your other beneficial organisms. So if, and again, they're seasonal. So they're not like every batch of soil that you get to those composting is going to have fungus net larvae, but um, there's a, a, it's the easiest thing to treat, you know, with BTI uh, or I can't remember if it's BT or BTI. Suzanne would kill me for not knowing this off the top of my head. Uh, <laughs> mosquito dunks, though, um, <laughs> what I'm thinking of uh, is a commercial version of that. The SF nematode is a great option. There's a lot of ways to kill fungus gnats um, and control them. So they're not really a big deal, I guess. I mean, would you ever want to use chemical sprays? I, I know we're trying to avoid that as much as possible and use biologicals instead, but I mean, would chemical spraying to knock something down harm the living soil? Are we talking about spraying the soil? Are we talking about spraying the foliage? Uh, I guess I was really thinking about spraying the foliage and it kind of falling down onto the soil, but yeah, I mean, it could go either way. Yeah, I think it's probably nominal amount of damage okay. it's actually doing to the biology in the soil. But there's okay. so many good options out there that are organically approved. Yeah, I don't really think, unless you need something that's systemic, you don't really need to move away from organics in terms of applications. There's a lot of great options. I mean, Suzanne, have you had Suzanne on your podcast? Not yet. No, she's oh, on the list well, though. Just just so right, you I'll know, Suzanne. <laughs> I'll let I know, her talk about this. She gives you so many good <laughs> options for biocontrols and sprays that like, I think you could, as an organic grower, specifically with cannabis, not necessarily need to use chemicals. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you this because it's in your, it's in your, the name of your company and, and your podcast and, and you use the word a lot here. Um, what, what does organic mean? Oh man, that's probably another I podcast. Know. We can, we can, we can have that on another podcast. Um, cause, <laughs> cause I will say, you know, I, I would say it's almost controversial sort of a term. Um, it's very hotly debated in our industry, CEA in general. Um, mm -hmm. and I think there, you know, speaking of myths, I think there's different perceptions, um, by consumers and by growers and farmers and et cetera, of what that term means. So we can totally save that for another time, but. Yeah, I'll you know. give you a two minute answer or a okay. one minute answer. Just okay. I think it's a really good question. I, you're right. It varies for everybody. And we're seeing within the organic community, all these different like groups, whether that's, you know, biodynamics or probiotics or. Mm. Korean natural farming, you know, uh, soil food web, all these guys fall within this sort of like organic production folks. And it's, it's really, um, everyone, you know, everyone thinks their way is the best and, you know, organic beyond organics, regenerative, there's all these terms yeah. now and it gets very confusing. And, you know, I think the idea is just, I, I, at the end of the day, for me, it's more of just like a feeling like, does this feel okay to me? Is it, is it mm. somewhat, I look at it more from the sustainability perspective. And, and environmental impact and I do of like, hey, is this, you know, 100% organic? Like, I'm okay using fish hydrolysate. That's stabilized with potassium hydroxide. It's approved under national organic program standards to stabilize and lower the, or lower the pH in, in, in this, and in stabilize this fish product. So some people would say, I'm not okay with that. And that's okay too. But um, there's, you just have to, I think you have to figure out what's right for you. What frustrates me about it is the bureaucracy. For example, I could not put that my product was hundred percent organic on my soil bag label. And I registered my, my label as a fertilizer, which required more money and more registration costs and uh, higher regula regulatory stuff because of the amount of fertility I'm putting in the soil. Um, I felt like that was the proper way to go. And that's really what all these living soil companies should be doing. But they would not let me put 100% organic ingredients on there because I had a little bit of rock dust in there. And rock dust is not carbonated, it's, or, it's an organic. And I'm like, no one uses that definition for organic versus inorganic. You know, it's, it's not 
it's not yet that's the standard that you know the department of agriculture was using and so it becomes very frustrating you know because <laughs> one's a chemistry definition another is a colloquial definition like when i go in the grocery store you know, I don't care. I know there's going to be some mineral fraction in the soil that if it was grown in soils, and frankly, that's okay. But yet we call that organic, 100% organic. So it's it's a frustrating term. And ultimately, like from a produce perspective, I hope that we get to the point where we're more concerned about sustainability. And I can I could go and pay a little bit more to get you know an apple or a tomato that was grown in soils that I know are low in heavy metals that I know were pesticide free, mm -hmm. that um, maybe were grown with better soil fertility. I mean, there's this whole idea around nutrient density that's not really proven out, but the idea that if we can provide higher fertility in our soils, rather than just hitting minimum sufficiency on these nutrients and trace minerals, we might get a healthier vegetable or healthier, you know, fruit. And so I, those are things that kind of interest me more around the sort of organics debate rather than just some I, I, I mean, I, I would, conversation. I'd love to see a certification around water use, you know, like let's come up with mm. a baseline and you could say like, I grew with less water. You know, I, you know, I'm just thinking like, you know, if you had bought like a, a lettuce plant or something and, you know, it was certified low water use or drought tolerant yeah. or, you know, so, something like that. Um, yeah, organic is such an, a nebulous term. And, and I feel like most consumers, what they care about are pesticides. I, I don't know that that's true. I mean, I haven't really read any studies. But if you if you do just sort of anecdotally ask people like, what does organic mean? Yeah, you know, I would say nine times out of 10, their answer is, oh, it doesn't it was grown without any pesticides. Um Oh. Because people know that that's bad, right? And these chemicals that could cause cancer, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know how many people think about, you know, how we're treating our soils and runoff and erosion and, you know, just uh, the source of, of nutrients necessarily. I think they realize, you know, this is probably healthier for the earth, healthier for the plant and therefore healthier for me. Um, but I don't know if they would connect all the dots, right? That organic certification uh, has created for, for us. Yeah, and you know, for me, I would probably choose a hydroponically grown lettuce plant than uh, one that was, with pyrethrins, for example, even though pyrethrins are technically organic, um, mm. I don't want to consume that. I buy organics, but then sometimes my organics, you know, I'm looking, I'm like, this was grown in Mexico. Like how, right? How stringent are the regulations? Like I'm paying more for something that I don't know if I feel any safer about. So I don't know. I, I would it's love true. to see some other certification that actually means something and gains traction and really tells me a little bit more about what's going on, but I completely you know. agree. Yeah. And, and yeah. And, you know, the hydroponics, um, CEA industry in general, uh, this idea of, can you be organically certified if you're growing with chemical fertilizers, like you might be pesticide free and maybe you're, you're using less land, but, oh, you know, you, you have a plastic greenhouse, so that's bad for the environment and you're using, you know, chemical fertilizers, well, that has to be bad for the environment. Um, or we have, you know, people might be trying to get sources of CO2 for, for enriching their indoor farms from, say, aquaculture or a mushroom farm mm -hmm. to try to get organic certification. But, you know, the second that they say, oh, well, I'm going to use liquid CO2, that was, you know, the CO2 was harvested from, you know, a coal plant. <laughs> Like, yeah, that's not organic. And it's like, yeah, but we reuse the CO2. <laughs> like we found yeah. another purpose for it to grow plants, but that's no, no. So um, I think there has to be other ways to break through just this one umbrella term of organic. Um, is your name, because this is organics as opposed to organic. I mean, was there strategy behind that? Like if you had said kiss organic, <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking like if you had had, you know, if your title was kiss organic, 
would yeah. people be just like jumping on you? Like, you can't say that, but by adding the S at the end, like you're in a safer space. <laughs> oh, I have no idea. You didn't even think that part. Better. That's good. Okay, good. <laughs> no, we had keep it simple. And, and then we went to, K, you know, we just abbreviated it and then yeah. put it to organics. Um, interestingly enough, though, along this topic, I, I recently in the last two years, decided to offer one chemical fertilizer within our company. And this was a big, this was like a, a months of struggle and debate and conversation, trying to decide if we were going to do this, if it fit with our, you know, ethics and, and ethos around growing plants. Um, and what it is, is a product called Beanstalk, and it's specifically marketed to the cannabis industry, but it's essentially um, Osmocote. There we go. So yes, it's like that's a it. okay. similar to Osmocote, a little different coating, but you know, it's made from petroleum based products. Um, however, my thought was, you know, it's, it's a more sustainable from an environmental perspective than Baguano, for example, which I don't carry or offer. It allows growers. And, and here was my thought. I was just trying to be pragmatic about it. I'm like, look, I know there's growers that are never going to grow organically. They're going to listen to me and, about our system and be like i'm a chemical guy you know and I, i'm not gonna be able to change those people so i was like if i can offer a slow release fertilizer where at the end of the cycle the ec of that media is going to be you know very very low or ideally nothing and they can just put in these this essentially a, a osmocote like product and then water their plant in a very simple method where it's all sort of figured out and they don't have to add other nutrients throughout the cycle that's something that really interests me from a sustainability perspective, even though it's not organic. I think if I can get, you know, a certain number of growers to stop buying these bottled nutrients that are out, out of China, where they're shipping all this water and other, you know, other chemicals, you know, across the ocean, then that's a win for the environment. It's more sustainable. I got a lot of flack for it and I still do. And I still think about this because I, you know, I'm not using it and I'm an organic guy, but I try and think about my greater impact. And, and to me, at the end of the day, it's really more about environmental impact and sustainability. And I, and that's why I guess in terms of our name, everything else we offer falls under, I think, NOP standards, except for this product. So. Well, that is very brave of you um, to go there and you know, the, this, this idea that where are we sourcing our products from, right? And, and whether that's fertilizers from Russia um, or media from China or lettuce, organic lettuce grown in Mexico. I mean, what is the sustainability um, truly around those products? Um, and yeah, if you can find things that were I don't know, created, grown, produced here that has to, well, I guess it doesn't have to, um, but it, it feels like it should be more sustainable, even just in terms of the carbon footprint of sh shipping, whatever that mm -hmm. product is. Yeah. And, and having a slow release fertilizer, that seems like it would make it a lot easier to manage the fertility of those soils, um, especially if you were maybe a new grower or someone who maybe used to grow in more inert media like cocoa or rock wool or something and, and want to get into this game, like maybe that would ease the transition a little. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of my thought. There, there's a fossil fuel cost to any of these things. We live in a yeah. global community. And as we move these things around the world, um, things coming from India are going to you know, require a lot more fossil fuels or China than stuff that we can be grown here or sourced locally. So absolutely, you know, we're always learning and improving. Um, but uh, I yeah, also I think just it's interesting topic. I also just want to say shame on um, the organic certification bureaucracy for not giving you certification because of your uh, uh, your crushed rocks or your 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 rock minerals it, because I don't know if you have seen but there was an article that came out I think like just in the last couple of weeks uh, researchers in the UK I think it was the UK found that crushed rock absorbs 
a shitload of CO2 from the atmosphere. Hmm. And, and you, I will, I will totally send it to you. Um, and, and they want to crush the rock, right? Cause it increases the surface area. So there's like all these like nooks and crannies of, of crushed rock and some, something about how it reacts with the atmosphere. And it, it might even be a specific type of rock. I think maybe it was basalt that it absorbs CO2. So organic people um maybe you want to rethink that well, um <laughs> to be clear we did get we do have our organic certification with c it was cdfa in this case that was the oh oh gotcha and, got and washington wsda washington that were giving me the hard time about that cdfa but how uh, i have me. it i have my certification i think we're the only soil mix certified as a fertilizer with them as an oim organic input material that's awesome. That I'm aware of. Um, but I had to change the label around a lot because of, you know, a variety of reasons, but this uh, was one of them. Okay. Um, okay. So yeah, that is a thing uh, that is very, very frustrating with bureaucracy, but yeah, yeah, um, it is what it is. Well, let me ask you um, just some bigger picture questions about the industry. You know, do you do you think our industry is is more collaborative or competitive or a little bit of both? And and when I say our industry, I guess you know you could focus in on on any aspect of the industry, but maybe cannabis. Yeah, I mean, since I know you from cannabis, and I primarily work in cannabis, I would take that as the industry. Um, it's a little of both, but I have found that when you meet the right people it can be really, really collaborative. Like, yeah. uh, you know, you, you would be a great example of that. I love uh, the relationship I have with you and being able to share some of the, you know, the information that you have. And, and you know, Suzanne, it was funny because I, I was talking to Stan about this today. I was like, you know, there's not a lot of, the people say there's not a lot of women in cannabis, but the other, but just yesterday I was at a facility and I was talking to a guy. I was like, you know, I don't know that much, but I got a guy for everything. Like, HVAC, I got a guy. And I was thinking of you. I'm like, not really a guy, a woman. But when it comes to entomology, you know, uh, Suzanne, um, yeah. there's a lot of like really great people in this industry. And I think if you, you know, if, if you're passionate and you share, um, you can really meet some really cool people. And, you know, there's a lot of shitty people in this industry too. Um, so you have to kind of have your BS meter on all the time. But mm. when you meet the right people, um, I think it's really great. I, I've made some great friendships and I've met some really, really smart people and I'm very grateful for that. Um, I think that's the thing about the podcast I love the most. It's just all the like really intelligent people I've gotten to meet yeah. over the years. So I'm going to lean towards collaborative, but there's, you know, this industry is known for criminals and snakes and bad people too. It's Everywhere. And, and so. the race to the bottom. I mean, the, the competition, I mean, is it going to kill our industry because we can't, I mean, it's not a high value product anymore, or are we just going to have to find more efficient ways to grow? Yeah. I shared a post today or people were selling their stuff for 19 cents a gram. Oh. And I was like, this, <laughs> this can't be good product. And it's so sad because they can't be surviving on those kind of margins. Wow. So, um, they should just start growing know. lettuce. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know, but um, yeah. I hope not. I hope, I hope consumers will appreciate what, you know, the term craft is so overused nowadays, but higher quality cannabis and that experience can be, you know, like, like the wine industry model um, really appreciated for these smaller vineyards that are able to produce something that people really like rather yeah. than just, you know, the, the Budweiser's of the world. I'm concerned about when we get federal legalization and, you know, Dow really decides they want to be a part of this or Syngenta or, you know, Certus or whoever. Um, yep. Scott's has already bought a bunch of huge companies. They bought Lux, they bought General Hydroponics, they bought Sun, Sunlight Supply um, and converted to Hawthorne. So it's already happened. It's already a lot, happening, you know? yeah. I don't know how relevant I'll be, but I hope that there'll be growers out there that will still want to work with small companies, people that are passionate and have been doing this for a while um, and not just go with the, you know, the largest egg companies. 
and that we keep our genetic diversity because I think there's a lot we can learn for the medical uses of this plant. And so I don't know. We'll see. I think you're safe. (laughs) (laughs) There'll always be demand for what you're doing. Oh, I certainly hope so. Um, Whether you're a big company or a small company, you still have to, it's still really hard to control the environment for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, also your comment about wineries, you know, I, when was the last time you went wine tasting and said, give me the highest, you know, alcohol volume uh, wine that you have? I mean, nobody orders wine by how much alcohol is in it. You order it by how it tastes and feels and how, you know, like, yeah, I just, I, I, I want cannabis to at some point shift towards that. And I think the craft grower is going to be a big piece of that. And it's not just going to be how much THC uh, you can get and how high you can get, but enjoy all the other aesthetic qualities of that plant. I think we're already starting to see it, um, certainly from growers and hopefully sooner Mm. by more consumers, but it's going to start with the grower. Yeah, we are seeing it. I mean, there's certainly a minimum that people want uh, in terms of THC percentage, it seems like, but, you know, Jeremy Plum speaks much more eloquently on this topic. I just did a podcast with him talking about sort of the, the sensory aspects of cannabis. And oh, cool. I want to check The man that is out. a genius. Yeah, he's great. But um, they've done double blind studies where they found people didn't select the highest THC level. Dr. Amy Ray did those studies um, at the Cultivation Classic. Um, so she she's a great resource talking about that. But yeah, we don't, people don't necessarily want the highest THC levels. They just don't know it. It's sort of a Mm. a carryover from the black market when you're trying to get the most bang for your buck. Sure. But now you can go to a store and get a huge variety selection. And frankly, you can just take one more hit or something like you don't need to, you don't need to be stoned out of your mind. So I, I I completely agree. I completely agree. Sometimes I just want to take the edge off, but if I, all I have available is 35% THC, it's probably going to create more of an edge and <laughs> as opposed to less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a lightweight. I'm not, I'm it doesn't too. my, my, uh, neurocannabinoid or endocannabinoid <laughs> system is, is not the same as most people that just doesn't like it as much. So me either, you know, I'm a real oddball. Um, I know that cannabis is supposed to give you the munchies, but it actually turns off my appetite. Oh, you're so lucky. I know. I want someone <laughs> to study my endocannabinoid system and tell me why that is. I, uh, I completely lose my appetite, which is really uh, sad. So, so it's like, okay, so do I eat before so that I will eat or do I eat after? So I won't eat. <laughs> I'm the total opposite. And that's one of the reasons I don't smoke very much is because I I'll eat everything in sight. And I just, I just want to lay on the couch and I let my brain wander. And I, I, I'm not very productive. Whereas yeah. I have friends that get like hyper productive and can function almost better. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then friends who don't react to edibles at all. Like it has to be smoked. I have, I no, know I a couple. No, no. Yeah. So where I hyper react to edibles, like I have to be really careful with edibles. So we're all yeah. different. We all, we all respond differently to this uh, special plant for sure. Let me finish with um, the classic question. What do plants crave? Oh boy. I, I'm sure you've gotten some great answers to this. I guess I would lean toward whatever they're missing. I don't know. Like for me, Mm. approaching a garden, the best piece of advice I ever got from someone was, was to look at what, what is the limiting factor of growth? Is it environmental? Is it light? Is it watering? Is it your soil? And really focus on that. I think what plants crave is whatever's holding them back. And so I always try to put on my detective hat and figure out what that is first. That's an awesome answer. I like it. I like it. Okay, well, so that's that's the end of the official question. So I have just a, a short list of rapid fire questions. Um, these are supposed to be fun and just answer, just answer in in one or two sentences. I might prod you for more uh, depending on your answer, um, but they're meant to be uh, quick, quick responses. All right, are you ready? Okay. All right. 
Are plants introverts or extroverts? Uh, introverts. Why? Just because I feel like I'm a little introverted and I feel like a lot of plant people are introverted. So maybe we attract like, I don't have a good answer for that. Interesting. Okay. Okay. If you could recreate soil from anywhere or any time, where or when would it be? Oh man, I really wish I had more time to think about that. I think tropical soils are really fascinating, but they're not necessarily super fertile and they tend to be just because of the heavy rainfalls. But I think they're really interesting, but mostly because around the tropical plants, because I think tropical plants are really interesting. So what makes tropical soils different? Well, you have like a rapid decomposition, for like high microbial content, high temperatures. Hmm. Um, so that like forest stuff is breaking down so quickly and then you don't you typically have much of a topsoil layer you know essentially you're growing oh. on rock you know, I'm thinking in my head I'm picturing Hawaii just because I've been to Hawaii okay so there's a lot of challenges around it they're not necessarily like the most fertile soils I think if we want to talk about like fertility I'd go back to like the Great Plains pre-industrial agriculture really um, with was probably some pretty amazing soils because you had, you know, these grasses growing on seasonally with um, buffalo and herds of animals, you know, trampling them down and spreading microbes and aerating them and adding fertility and bringing in new seeds as they travel around. I, I think that the, the topsoil layers in there were pretty epic from what, I, what I've read. Hmm. Um, I think those are probably some pretty fertile soils what about along the nile the nile yeah i don't know anything about that region oh. um, i mean the amazon <laughs> i would think would be better because that's you know people talk about terra preta and the fertility of soils huh. that's sort of what biochar is based around oh I really the nile running through a bunch of like desert sands it's made my geography is just awful <laughs> No, it does. It, it basically it does. It runs through the desert, um, but those annual floods, right, would bring silt and and minerals uh, and nutrient. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, the Amazon's pretty fascinating too in a lot of ways. I haven't been there either, but it's it's on the bucket list. So. Okay. And Terra Preta is pretty fascinating. How these, you know, clay pots would or these fires and everything they would break down, you know, next to the Amazon, and over time the fertility of the soils would be really high due to the way they were you know you, people can read about it um but that's essentially what we're trying to re recreate with with biochar wow i had no idea well i love that you had multiple answers to that question um <laughs> okay um you already told me what the best advice you got what is the worst advice you've ever received or heard about growing plants don't know. I, I think the, the, the biggest pitfall I fell into, I'm going to kind of change your question. Sorry. Okay. Uh, nope, is please. this idea of always having to add more like that? I, I need mm. to keep pushing the plants. So the biggest mistakes I've made as a grower are uh, initially was overwatering, like overdoing it with my plant. Um, but then also like going to a trade show and getting all these different samples and then applying them all and then thinking I need to do that moving forward because my plant grew better than it did before without controlling for a variable, you know, like 90% of them could have been crap. And maybe I was just low in potassium and one plant, one of those products had potassium in it. And that's why my plant did better. So I've fallen into the pitfall of like marketing and thinking I needed a particular product because the salesman convinced me that it was proprietary or special at the end of the day, the plant needs certain elements. And if we can provide those, it's going to grow well. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I get a, a sort of a similar answer, not from everybody, but from a lot of people about just more, 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 whether it's more nutrients or more water or more of something um, that no, you might just be killing your plant uh, by, by giving it more than it needs. Okay. Last question. Compost okay. tea. Sweetened yes. or unsweetened? 
Well, I don't know. Uh, that's such a weird question. I know. <laughs> I would never drink. My dad's drank it, but no. No way, do, really? Don't do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Don't do so that. So you should ask him. Would he prefer it sweetened? <laughs> so you can definitely use molasses is what I thought of, because that's sweet. Oh. But, um, it's, a good, it's a good bacterial and fungal food. So um, unsulfured blackstrap molasses is, is a great option for feeding microbes. But yeah i mean if you've looked ever looked at it under the microscope you would not want to put it in your mouth like <laughs> okay. it's there's too much going on in there it's not a probiotic uh i i wouldn't think so I, there's too much risk of other stuff <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well but the fun you said earlier fungal gnats really like right the compost tea so um they they must think it's sweet yeah, well, so the fungus gnats will die, the larvae will die in the tea because of the water, but oh, the, sure. The compost fraction in your soil mix will potentially have larvae that could hatch. So, uh, oh, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay. Well, that is uh, the end of uh, my questions for you. Uh, I do want to ask you, where can our listeners learn more about Kiss Organics and find your podcast if they don't know who you are already? Um, how do they find you? So the website is kisorganics.com. We have a lot of free information on our blog. You can find us on there. We're on Instagram at KIS Organics. You can, you can find us on there too. And then I have the podcast, Cannabis Cultivation and Science. It's available across all platforms. And yeah, that's where you would find us. Awesome. Well, Tad, thank you so much for your time today. It was really fun talking to you and, and grilling you with questions and learning about soil. I, I feel like a kid in a classroom. I don't know a ton about soil. I'm admitting that here uh, on my own podcast. And I learned a lot today. I had fun. You were a great host. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Tad. Um, well, hopefully I'll see you soon at a conference in the near future. Uh, or maybe I'll come visit you in Washington. That would be great. You're welcome anytime. Yeah, it'd be great to see you. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Tad. Thank you for coming back to finish our conversation with Tad Hussey. Join us next week to hear our interview with Joe Schwartz. Joe is the vice president of Amhydro, a premier CEA technology company. I'm Dennis Wadan, and this has been The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for growing with us.